I speak i'm in in big trouble and i don't want to be in big trouble with remember that guy the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present hey there folks it's me noted soccer expert james diaz here with you once again and we have an incredibly special guest for you this week the person who should not speak please introduce yourself you know what i'm actually not the person who should not speak but i am his assistant rui faria you know, I'm the one who gouges out people's eyes on the sideline so he doesn't get in trouble because I'm the one getting in trouble. You know, I got to protect Jose. It's a much more valuable ally for us to have. We need a, we need a troublemaker because what a, what a crazy World Cup there yesterday, guys. So glad that Argentina pulled it off and made me look like a genius. Definitely no sad trombone noise after me here. I thought the part where Mbappe didn't score was really crazy. I didn't see that coming. I'm not going to say anything. I refuse <laughs> to go along with this. <laughs> well, okay. If, if you don't want to talk about the amazing World Cup that happened yesterday, Xavier, what is making memories for you right now? So I have surprisingly not talked much about the New York Madison Square Garden teams this year because it's been a bit of a slow start. But they are both on five-game winning streaks, which makes me happy. So I'm going to enjoy the fact that at this exact moment, the Rangers and Knicks are both looking pretty good. So I don't know how long that will last, so I will enjoy it for now. I know that also the basketball season still has not started in Philadelphia, but you know we'll see what happens with the Sixers in a little bit. No, it, didn't you hear? It did start. Joel Embiid had 53 points the other night. <laughs> oh, great. Great to know. This, I've only, this is I've only seen hides. Eagles things around, so I didn't I didn't know if it, if it started yet. So well, and it was going to be a bummer if his only fifty point game of the season was in that weird preseason they were having, where like the other teams' games were still counting, but not the Sixers. So that was like the one night only return. The season hadn't officially started; they weren't quite on tour yet. So really, I think. So did Joel B just put together consecutive fifty point performances? He did. He did. It was remarkable to see, and it's the kind of thing that he just makes look so easy at this point. You know, <laughs> it, it feels like time is not real when you're watching him play. It just alters all your perspective. So, no, he's, he's been amazing. The Sixers are actually on a three-game home winning streak. Going for four tonight against a Golden State team that is pretty barren. I think Steph and Draymond are both out. I mean, they're still missing James Wiseman. Oh, and James Wiseman, who was just such a smart pick by the smartest organization in all of basketball. If you don't believe it, they'll tell you. No, the Warriors have never done anything wrong. And that's what makes it so much more understandable when they will beat the Sixers by like 10 tonight. Play goes for 60 on 23-pointers. Because you predicted that if the Sixers win, do I have to put a sad trombone noise? I mean, please. I mean, can you do it like, um, you should like reverse it. It should be the same noise, but reversed. Because <laughs> it is like, it is a happy trombone in that instance. But There we go. No, Joel Embiid's been incredible. Xavier brought it up. So I will just keep on saying the Eagles, oh my God, this is the greatest Eagles team I've ever watched. They're the most talented Eagles team of all time. They're better than the 2017 team. 
That doesn't mean that they're going to win the Super Bowl. These things come down to so many different factors. You know, the best team often doesn't win. It's the team that is best at the end. So I'm not making any kind of claim as far as the, the eventual success of this season. I'm just saying it's the most talented Eagles team I've ever watched. Jalen Hurts is him. A.J. Brown is him. Darius Slay is him. Dallas Goddard was injured, but he is about to be him again. Just a team full of hymns. And <laughs> boy, am I standing over here. All I'm thinking about is that freaking company that advertises on all the podcasts about erectile dysfunction. That's called hymns. We'll send you a discreet packaging. We'll only have Eagles logos on it. So everyone thinks it's sports related. It's actually so you can get a boner now. I mean, I would have no need for hymns watching the way the Eagles have been playing this year. Let me tell you. <laughs> but before we talk more about hymns let's move on to them and let's see what james has to say i'll I'll tell you what's making memories for me because here's the thing with our uh special programming next week this will be our last making memories that'll come out in 2022 and so it is my solemn duty to make a final report from the front line of 2022's biggest story we got one more butt buzzing update let's go my god All right, so when we last checked in, Hans Niemann had filed his giant lawsuit against Magnus Carlsen and Chess.com CEO, and also Hikaru Nakamura, who was the other chess grandmaster who had been streaming on Twitch and like made some comments about potential theories about how Hans Niemann might have cheated, retweeted some things about it. So Hans Niemann is not doing super well with this lawsuit, unsurprisingly. The number one thing is Hikaru Nakamura in particular is like, take my name the fuck out of your mouth. <laughs> Sentence that I enjoyed the absolute most from the entire thing. I read through quite a bit of this motion. Mr. Nakamura's alleged retweeting of a tweet from Twitter from an account named Unsubstantiated Chess Rumors is not an actionable statement of fact. The Twitter account retweeted was quite literally named Unsubstantiated Chess Rumors. <laughs> That's pretty good. It's not Adley Rushman's big tits, but it's a great name. Carlson and Chess.com have also filed jointly to get this case dismissed. They're basically saying Hans Niemann tried to curate a reputation as the bad boy of chess. Like he tried to make that his outward appearance, tried to capitalize that. And now in quotes, he wants to cash in by blaming others. Lawsuits and dismissals are flying. And it is all going to come to a head. Unfortunately, we will not know until 2023 how it goes because there is one final big tournament this year. This is a tournament I only just learned about this week. It is the FIDE, which is the International Chess Federation. It uses the French name, much like FIFA. And it is the Rapid and Blitz Championships taking place in Almaty, Kazakhstan during the regular last week of the year that they always take place in from December 25th to December 3rd. All three of Hans Niemann, Magnus Carlsen, and Hikaru Nakamura will be at this tournament. It is possible, based on the bracket, that Hans Niemann and Magnus Carlsen could end up in a match against one another. Carlsen has publicly said he will not play in a match against Niemann. He did not say that specifically about this tournament, but he said before, if he gets matched up with him, he's not going to play him. So we could see some drama one final time in this last week, and I want to make sure that you all know to be on the lookout. The biggest story of the year is not over yet, 
And I would be remiss if I did not make sure that you were all aware of that. I am very excited to see what happens with that because this has been such a long running story. I just hope that it's not an anticlimactic ending after all the butt buzzing and all of the drama. If it just ended with, uh, we decided we can't really figure anything out. So these two just will never box, uh, never play chess against each other again. I was a slip of the tongue there because I will wait to see if either of you have another thing to say. I think Diaz wants, but I do have something else I wanted to bring up real quick. Diaz, what were you going to well, say? No, I just love that slip of the tongue because holy shit, this is, this is the pay-per-view event that we need. Boxing has been trending in a more entertainment kind of direction. We're going to put together a big event. <clears throat> Let's make the Jake Paul Canelo fight happen so that we can finally see that beautiful knockout. And then these two with one of the greatest rivalries of the 21st century. Let's be real. In terms of the drama, both of them being at the height of their games. Let's get them in the ring. If you're not going to solve it on the chessboard, let's solve it in the boxing ring. It needs to happen. Okay, I'm glad you said that because that is what I was trying to talk about. Because this past weekend, Ludwig, the YouTube streamer, content creator, hosted a massive chess boxing event that myself and Caitlin and good friend Matt Mahan were all watching pretty much all night on Sunday. And and James, not all night, but also James. For anyone who does not know what chess boxing is, it's exactly what Diaz described, where... Two competitors have two minutes to do a round of chess and then they punch the crap out of each other. And then they do another round of chess and then punch the crap out of each other. And then another round of chess alternating until someone wins either by checkmate or by knockout. It is very rarely by checkmate. You don't make it through that much of a match. And one of the fun things about the event that Ludwig put on was the women's bout between... Women's Grandmaster Dina Belenkaya and Andrea Botez, who is a Twitch streamer, not as good of a chess player. Her sister, her older sister, Alex, is like a very strong chess player, but still high level, but not Grandmaster level chess streaming. The lead into this fight was great with a lot of trash talking on both sides and Dina saying that Andrea's going to have to start a podcast because her face will be so mangled she won't be able to uh, you know, have a stream on camera. And the fight did not disappoint. Befitting her status, Dina was winning in the chess part. To keep people from being able to just stall, you have a set timer for each person for chess. So if you stall like for the first round, you're going to have much less time at the end and you could lose by default by not having enough time to play moves if you can't knock them out. And so Dina is winning in the chess portion, Andrea winning in the boxing portion. We get to the last round of boxing, the third round. Andrea is just beating the crap out of Dina. Dina is running away from her to try to avoid getting hit just to get back to the chess so she could win because Andrea was pretty much out of time at that point in the chess. She gets standing counted three times in this round. By rule, the last standing count happened with one second left in the round. And by rule, it should have been a TKO with one second left in the last round of boxing. But the ref missed it. And Dina went on to win seconds later at the start of the last round of chess because Andrea ran out of time. 
So they had to review it in the immediate aftermath. Andrea, you know, talked about how she wants to fight again and said that, you know, I thought this was chess boxing, not hide and seek. The trash talking was the trash talking was excellent. But the day after, Ludwig had to post that after reviewing the fight and talking to chess boxing officials, Andrea should have been awarded a TKO for the standing count. They weren't going to take the win away from Dina because they played out the fight and she won in, in the chess, but they did give Andrea a second belt. Andrea, to her part, is like, no, I just want to go beat her up again. Let's just do that part. But it, it was well worth the watch. It's all on YouTube. I highly recommend watching it. There was, I think, nine bouts. The women's bout was definitely the best, but there were a couple other really good ones for people to watch. And so, yeah, chess boxing, very fun. I knew it was a thing. I did not know that this was a specific pay-per-view event that had already been organized <laughs> on Twitch. The thing is, Ludwig is friends with Magnus, so he, I don't think Magnus probably wants to get punched, but he could possibly do it. We'll see what happens. Wants to, at the very least, punch Hans Neiman at this point. So he could probably be talked into it. Like you said, it's been a long-running story. And speaking of long-running, it was my category this week after my successful conquest of our tribunal last week. And I wanted to talk about really the one kind of sport that I, at this point in my life, feel like I can relate to the most, even if on a much smaller level. And that's endurance sport. I think there's something very interesting about the mentality of people who take on these typically solo events and just have to deal with not only their competitors, but the difficulty of that kind of isolation. I want to talk to the two of you in particular about the last great race. Now that's a term, you can throw it around a lot, but if I'm saying it in this context, it's going to be referring to when it was coined by a British sports reporter, Ian Woolridge, in 1978. That is when he got sent to North America, the frozen wasteland of Alaska, and there he witnessed a running of the Iditarod Trail Race. Like someone called Balto. Well, so, Iditarod was related to that. It had been running for a couple years at this point. This is the closest race in the history of the Iditarod. It's an incredibly good one for Ian Woolridge to witness. And... While he's there, he crosses paths with the person that is probably going to become the most complete of a competitor the sport has ever seen. However, it's not one of the competitors from that 1978 race. It is a child of one of those competitors who's going to go on to become, might I say, the last great racer of the Iditarod. This is the story of a guy named Lance Mackey. That sounds like a sled dog racer name. It is a sled dog racer ass name. You want to know what his dad's sled dog racer name is? Dick Mackey. Well, I was going to say like Pete Mackey, but that was close. It's Dick Mackey, and he is a part of the first running of the Iditarod. While sled dog racing has obviously been a thing for thousands of years, about seven to 8,000 for indigenous peoples in the Pacific Northwest and in the plains of Canada and America, it didn't really become a widespread competitive sport. It was kind of dying out as a tradition in a lot of ways in those mid-1900s when a guy named Joe Reddington gets with this one woman named Dorothy Page. Dorothy Page in the 60s wanted to set up a centennial celebration for Seward's Folly, the purchase of Alaska from Russia. They get this idea, okay, we'll do a sled dog race. We'll do this trail from Anchorage to Nome that is most famous for being the trail that in 1925 
was used to transport a large amount of antitoxin to Nome during a diphtheria outbreak. This is later dramatized in the movie Balto. Reddington wants to use this to revitalize sled dog racing to go through all of these towns. These are towns of like 50 to 500 people that it's going to be stepping through. Dorothy Page eventually kind of falls out of the picture of this. But in 1973, Joe Reddington, along with several others, including Dick Mackey, have the first running of the I Did Rod. This is 1973. Dick Mackey doesn't win. Dick Wilmarth does. Dick's all the way down. Too many dicks. Too many cooks. There's too many dicks. I did check. Unfortunately, those are the only two dicks, but there are two very prominent dicks. It's too, too many dicks. But 20 days after they leave from Anchorage, they reach Nome. Among the people that celebrate when Dick Mackey arrives there is his three-year-old son at the time, Lance Mackey. Lance had been born June 2nd, 1970 in Anchorage. And this is his, obviously, first Iditarod experience. is everyone's first Iditarod experience. But his first sled dog experience you could technically count as being April of 1970. Because that is when his seven-month pregnant mother, Kathy, competed and finished in fourth in the North American Women's Championships. As soon as he could hold a sled, his dad had built him his own before entering his first youth competition. Wins it with what people are already describing as like a psychic connection to the dogs. Kid looks like he's a natural. During this whole time, Dick is also continuing to compete in the Iditarod. He competes in every year from 1973 until that 1978 race. As I mentioned, it is the closest Iditarod race ever. Wearing the lucky number 13 bib, Dick is, over the last 10 miles, starting with about a two-mile lead. This is just as they're coming into the outskirts of Nome. He's going to do the little, like, trail that actually goes through the city, has some tight turns and stuff. He's got that two-mile lead over Rick Swenson. Not Dick, unfortunately. Rick Swenson, over this 10-mile stretch, just goes balls to the wall, gets neck and neck as they get into the city. And actually, Rick crosses the finish line first but rick had a six dog sled team and dick Mackey had an eight dog sled team meaning his dogs crossed the line first and the race organizers did decide his sled was the victorious one by a single second the narrowest margin in iditarod history wait i don't understand that so if you're doing a photo finish to see who comes first dick had more dog so he had a longer train and he was further back from okay, the beginning okay. of the dog. Okay, so, so Dick crossed second, but his dogs crossed first because exactly. he had more dogs. Exactly. Because you could have anywhere from six to 14 dogs. It, like There was not a mandated size. And also, not all the dogs make it. They don't die often, but they are often like left at camps because they're getting injured or something. All like right, that. I got to rewatch that Cuba Gooding Jr. movie to see what else I don't remember <laughs> about sled dogs. Don't worry. I'll tell you plenty about sled dogs because... This is a family affair for them. While this is not yet time for Lance Mackey to step in, Lance has a half-brother, Rick Mackey, from Dick's earlier marriage. And Rick Mackey, in his sixth running of the Iditarod in 1983, wearing the 13 bib, just as his father did, also wins the Iditarod. So teenage Lance, he's seen his dad win. He's seen his half-brother win. Unfortunately, this is when his parents get divorced. Ooh. So he lives initially with his mom, but he's kind of a little shit kicker. And very quickly, she's like, I can't deal with this. You're making too much trouble. I'm going to send you up to live with your dad, who at this point has moved to Coldfoot, Alaska and opened up a truck stop. Coldfoot is called that because it's where people above the Arctic Circle were said as prospectors to have gotten cold feet and turned back. 
It is a census-designated area that in 2020 had 34 people, which was a 240% increase over 2010 when it had 10 people. This is Ice Road Truckers territory, literally because it has been featured in the show Ice Road Trucker. Yeah, now I'm just more mad at David Zaslav because he only wants Ice Road Truckers. That's the only shows that he wants to have on HBO Max. Everything else can go fuck itself. Now, with this being the middle of nowhere, Lance kind of falls off of being able to participate in this passion of his. And so he takes a bunch of dead-end jobs for a while, has a failed marriage, and also, frankly, does a whole lot of methamphetamines. This does not go well for him for a while. Finally, in 1997, he reconnects with this old girlfriend from high school, Tanya. They marry within a month. And at first, it's one of those marriages where, like, these two are incredibly self-destructive people, and they're just both feeding into that with one another. However, in 1998, on his birthday, they decide we are turning a new page today. We are going to get clean. We're going to move to Anchorage, Alaska. We're going to get you back into sled dog racing. We're going to scrimp and save until we can get you some dogs. He gets one female dog, Rosie. And this is the one he's going to be like, okay, I got to start breeding her. He gets this deal where he can mate her with one like prestigious stud dog, and he'll get to keep one member of the litter. And the rest will go to the owner of the other dog. This dog that he gets in 2000, Zorro, is the most important dog to his entire career. He's going to be a major lead dog. And Xavier, he is a major sire dog. Zorro is a dog that fucks. He's a dog that fucks, yes! <laughs> so, Zorro is on the team when in 2001, Lance Mackey runs his very first Iditarod. He's going to finish 36th out of 57. A pretty good first showing. However, that only wins him $1,000 and the belt buckle that everyone gets for it. Things also turn a little bit worse during that because Lance Mackey didn't have necessarily the best oral hygiene as someone who has done a lot of methamphetamines. In particular, as he got towards the end of the race, there was one night he was eating some meat and he literally just cracked a tooth and just like destroyed one of his teeth. And he was like, oh, that's worse than usual. That's not good. He pulls into Gnome at the end and falls into Tanya's arms, basically like decrepit. He's like, I need to go to the hospital. Turns out that he has throat cancer. Jeez. So they immediately start a surgery and chemotherapy regimen. They also find out during this time he has something called Raynaud's syndrome. It's a blue fingers, right? Yeah, it's, it's basically like almost permanent frostbite. Eventually, his left finger is going to get so bad, he goes to a doctor. He asks him to amputate it. Doctor says like, no, I can't do that unless there's something wrong with it. So he says, okay, do you want to see me like bite the end of this off right now? Because that would hurt less than it just hurts. The doctor's like, okay, no, 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 hey, hey, let's not get crazy. But why don't you go to this other doctor down the street that I can refer you to? Lance says he walked into that guy's office. He saw the doctor had two and a half fingers on one of his hands. He's like, oh, sick. This is my guy. We're, we're set. This guy will chop a finger off for me. And he does get that finger voluntarily amputated. He is continuing to try and get to the idea of going through all of this, which is fucking phenomenal. But he's not doing particularly well. However, as he finally reaches his healthiest point, there's another big race we need to take a moment to talk about. And this is where he is going to really make his name and kind of cut what is left of his teeth on it. In 1983, after about a decade of the Iditarod being a thing, there were some guys, very Lazarus Lake-like, they were saying, you know what, this is too easy. We need a more hardcore, a thousand mile plus race. They make something called the Yukon Quest. This goes through both Alaska and the Yukon. 
I appreciate the pun in the name. Let, 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 let's be clear here, too. How long does the Iditarod take? 1,100 miles. It takes, at this point, people are running it in approximately 10 days or so. 10 to 9 days are, like, the top finishers. So this organizer said, that's not long enough. We need these dogs to run further for more days. What? <laughs> this is like the ultra marathon. This is the, like Lazarus, it's Lazarus Lake. Lazarus Lake, but worse because it's not killing yourself doing it. You're actively harming animals. Well, here's the thing. It is about the same length. It is, I think it's maybe 1,200. It's not significantly longer than the other one when you're talking about these big distances. However, here are some crucial differences. In the Iditarod, there are certain stops where you can switch your sled out if there's a problem. That is not an option here. You have one sled for the entirety of the Yukon Quest. Uh, there's also 22 stops over the entirety of the Iditarod. There are nine on the Yukon Quest. And your six to 14 dogs, as I mentioned, you can swap those out even in the Iditarod, you know, at one camp if one has a cracked foot or something. You can get a replacement. Nope, the six to 14 you have are the ones you have. You can drop them off still. If they are injured, you can say like, okay, this one's like, he's got to stay here and, and go recuperate, but you do not get a different dog. And you scared me for a second there. I thought you were saying, oh, I'm just going to drop this no, no, dog no, no, off you in the snow and fucking leave it to <laughs> die. No, you do not do that. It is not that hardcore. However, because this is earlier in the year than the Iditarod, it is also much colder. It gets to negative 60 degrees Fahrenheit at times with up to 50 mile per hour winds on some of these planes. Yukon Quest just sounds like a masochist version of Oregon Trail. That's all this is to me. Yes. <laughs> you, you are correctly interpreting this. Very quickly becomes, okay, this is the number two race, at least in the North American circuit. Like, this is the most prestigious thing after the Iditarod. From 2002 to 2004, an Austrian named Hans Gott had come in. He was the first European winner. Wins three consecutive times. Three times is a record. Three times straight a record as well. So imagine his surprise in 2005, when in his very first UConn quest, rookie Lance Mackey dusts him, comes out of nowhere to have a several-hour lead on him, winning his very first major competition with a time of 11 days and 32 seconds. The power of meth, kids. It's, hey, he is supposedly clean at this point. Allegedly, Lance Mackey is clean. At this point. <laughs> the power of not being on meth. <laughs> there you go. This is even more impressive when you think that a month later, he decides to also participate in the Iditarod. This was like, okay, it's great if you finish both of those races. He makes it in the top 10 of the Iditarod for the first time this year, finishing seventh with largely the same dogs from the Yukon Quest, getting a prize of 38,000 this time. Next year, he wins his second consecutive Yukon Quest, despite at one point a total whiteout blizzard that forces all but 11 racers to quit halfway. That is still to this day the fewest number of ones to have finished the Yukon Quest, but it does not slow down our boy Lance Mackey. He is quickly becoming a really big favorite in the sled dog racing scene because there'd been a bit of a sea change in the sport recently. Hans Gott's kind of a good example of this. There were more and more often either more upper class people from the North Americas or like Europeans coming over with all the super high tech carbon fiber stuff, you know, the neon jackets all decked out in the most expensive gear possible. Meanwhile, here is Lance Mackey, 
who is as Alaskan as you can possibly imagine someone to look like. He is just this skinny backwoods white guy uh, at this point, because of the like throat cancer surgery, his face is just very skeletal and it's not, it's, it's not a terrifying one. It's just a, a country ass boy that has been beat to shit by life. He's Alaskan he ghost rider. Yeah. And here he is still kicking people's ass in these sled dog races. In fact, in 2006, he finishes in the top 10 again this time. After this, he wins this year 35,000. And we've mentioned these purse numbers. This isn't a very lucrative sport. You know, while the kenneling that he does and the dog breeding that he does, he makes some money off of that. It takes a lot to take care of the dogs just in the races. They are averaging about 10 to 14,000 calories a day when they are racing these races, each individual dog. It's a huge amount of meat. He has to, between these two races, get 6,000 pounds of meat ready for his dogs at these various stops. So he's just got like trunks of it frozen at his place. Do you guys want to guess what he says the best meat for dogs is? Elk. Elk is a good guess. It is not the answer, but it is a good guess. Not dog. The it's dog not dog. That's fucked up. That's it's fucked up, man. <laughs> Lance Mackey swears that one of the secrets to his success is he has a great beaver guy. Beaver, it's super dark. It's really rich in iron. It's really fatty. The dogs love it. It's incredibly calorie dense. Hmm. So in 2006, when it's like registration time, he camped out for days because he wanted to be the first person registered. That is because 2007 is going to be his sixth running at the Iditarod. And if you remember Dick and Rick Mackey, he wants to make sure he's wearing that 13 bib this year. He does get the 13 bib. And 12 days after his third consecutive Yukon Quest victory, Lance goes out and with 13 of the same 16 dogs that just raced, and he tears through the Iditarod, goes through another 1,000 miles. These dogs in 40 days run over 2,000 miles, 100 of which in the Iditarod, by the way, is on a broken rail on one of the sleds. Nine days, five hours, eight minutes, and 41 seconds after they take off from Anchorage, they cross the finish line in Nome. He breaks into tears as he is just overwhelmed by emotion. Uh, he's congratulated by then-Governor Sarah Palin over the phone for his uh, immense accomplishment. <laughs> he has become the first ever person to win these two competitions in the same year. People were already like, it's insane that you're doing well in both of these. And now he has won them both. 2008, he goes to the Yukon Quest. Now he's tied at this point, Hans Gott's record of three straight. Lance Mackey does not want to settle for that tied record. So he does go ahead and win a fourth consecutive Yukon Quest. Now he decides, you know what's better than winning back-to-back? -back? Winning back-to-back -back competitions in back-to-back -back years. And so he goes out and for the second consecutive year, this time against Jeff King, who had won in 2006 as his main competitor, he has some legendary shithousery in this. Both of them do to some extent. Jeff King early on is riding just behind playing his iPod speaker as loud as he possibly can just to mess with him. Lance pulls into the last major stop. He goes and lies down, closes his eyes with all of his dogs. Jeff King a little bit later gets in. He says, all right, Lance is taking a nap. I can afford to take a little bit of a nap here. Lance Mackey was sleeping with an eye open. And the second he sees Jeff King fall asleep, he bursts out of that stop as quickly as he possibly can. And it wins him. His second consecutive Iditarod. For the second year now, he has won both of these major competitions. Fantastic gamesmanship. He's, he's a competitor because Jeff King has faster dogs. He knows he has faster dogs, but it's both that shithousery and 
he talks about very often when he would get to the hills. That's when just the coordination between not only the dogs themselves, but him and his dogs, that connection that he's had since he was a little kid, they could always gain on those hills because they were just the more disciplined, more connected team, even if they weren't always necessarily the fastest. Some tragedy, however, does strike this team later that year in April. Zorro is pretty old at this point. He's for a race time. He's like eight. So he's getting towards the end of his career and late in the race, he is actually resting in the sled when a snow machine comes out of nowhere and crashes into the back of the sled. That is, by the way, for anyone not from Alaska, what they call snowmobiles. I'm glad you clarified because I thought you meant like a plow or something. No, no, no. So it is a snowmobile. But if you say snowmobile in Alaska, everyone will immediately know you're not from Alaska. None of us are from Alaska, so I think that's fine. But we want to blend in. Cultural accuracy for our one Alaska listener that may or may not exist. Zorro is in the sled. And while Lance is able to dodge out of the way and the dogs at the front are able to kind of move out of the way, it collides with the sled and Zorro is pinned under the snow machine. Lance, in his own words, beats the shit out of the guy with a sled pole runs as quickly as he can with the sled to get the injured Zorro to a town where they airlift him and the personal cost of $10,000 to get him in the nearest hospital. There is no price too high for him to save his beloved dog. Good news is Zorro never races again, but Zorro does recover from this and he's still able to do the thing that at this point was going to make more money for Lance Mackey. All right. I was going to have to immediately disqualify this if you told me the dog died. No, so, the dog does not die. I'm glad, I'm glad the dog gets to continue fucking. So that's Zorro good. has a, a long, fruitful stud career. Wow. <laughs> Despite Zorro, he doesn't do both competitions the next year. He decides, okay, now I've got my four straight. I've got that record. I can let someone else win the Yukon Quest. But he does come back to the Iditarod. And when a third straight, becoming the third person to do it in history, he wins it by so much, he stops on the outskirts of Nome and goes down the line of dogs, personally petting and thanking each one of them before resuming the race the rest of the way into it. A leader is only as good as his troops, and Lance Mackey is only as good as his dogs. That is a man that understands the sport. He is a legend at this point. Known resident Terry Dillon was interviewed by the Denver Post after this, described him as Iron Man or crazy, either one or both, just a good old Alaska guy. This is enough for him after this year to be inducted into the Iditarod Hall of Fame while he is still active. Imagine having to compete against a Hall of Famer, not in the way of like, oh, I got a pitch to Albert Pujols, but oh no, this guy like had an induction ceremony already. Yeah, but then you'd feel so much better if you beat him. Well, unfortunately, Lance Mackey still has some shit to prove, Xavier. You see, like I said, he's the third person to win three straight. But as he's proved with the Yukon Quest, you know what's more fun than three straight? four straight 2010 there are three leaders for most of the race lance mackey jeff king and hans Gott, the austrian from the yukon quest the, all three of them very close together for much of the race something about the iditarod it alternates for the middle portion between a northern and a southern route every year to again get all of these tiny small villages as much publicity as possible and at the junction of that before you start that final third is a place called Kaltag, and this is normally a very big, important stop where everyone like rests up. It's one of the last times that like, if you're gonna switch your sled, you really switch it out. Jeff King comes into this lead and he takes a rest and Lance Mackey simply does not. Continues on through the night until the next stop much, much further down, at which point he's built a lead that he just never surrenders. And with a personal record of 
eight days, 23 hours, 59 minutes, and nine seconds. He becomes the second ever person to finish under nine days, the fifth to win four total times, and the first ever to win four straight Iditarods. Lance Mackey appreciates your applause. That is the peak of his career. We are going to talk about the denouement now. There's a couple different reasons that he starts to fade away. A big one is many of his early best dogs were starting to age out. Another one is his body is entirely ravaged. In fact, he has no salivary glands at this point because of the throat cancer surgery. So in one of those races when he'd been really thirsty, he tried to just like scoop some snow into his mouth. He almost suffocated because you can't melt the snow without saliva. So like he's at a disadvantage being out in the wilderness at all times. But maybe the biggest thing is the vicious financial cycle if you start not doing well. When he won his very first ever Iditarod, do you want to guess how much money he won? (laughs) $69,420. Diaz, if you had stopped at the hundreds digit, you would have been absolutely correct. It is exactly $69,000. I got so excited for a moment that you were going to get it right on the money. I pushed it too far. Too greedy. Too greedy. pushed it too far. (laughs) That's Icarus flying into the sun if I've ever seen it. His first three years, 69,000. Already by 2010, because of the great financial crisis, it's all the way down to 50,400. So still winning first place has taken a huge financial blow. And the next year, he still like does pretty well. Finishes a little bit more than nine and a half days, but he drops all the way to 16th for the factors that we listed. And so he only wins 12,600, which is now a pittance compared to what he needs to get to just maintain this sporting lifestyle. And the next year, while finishing in 22nd in some ways is nice because he gets $6,900. That is not a very nice amount of money in terms of like solvency. How much is he selling breeding rights for though? It's a niche market. Like dog breeders can't necessarily pay for that much. So while that's funding him, like the sport as a whole, unless you are one of the best is incredibly difficult to maintain a financial standing in. And one of the best means finishing the top 10 consistently. And he started to just not be able to do that anymore and takes a little bit of a break, comes back in 2019 and he finishes in 2019. That's his last official finish because in 2020, he gets a urine sample that does test positive for methamphetamines. Oh no. He'd fallen off the wagon. This is a little bit eerie because it's the second week where I have found an article written about a guy years before like things may have taken a darker turn where they give a quote that really kind of alludes to things maybe taking a darker turn later on in 2010 he spoke to espn and the very last line is a quote from him i can pretend to be so tough only so long at this point he has fallen off the wagon and later on the throat cancel return and i am sad to say that he did pass away this year a couple months ago september 7th 2022 so it is the late lance mackey i called him the last great racer That's maybe not entirely true. There are still some titans of the sport right now. There's a father and son team, Dallas and Mitch Seavey, who from 2012 to 2017, pretty much as soon as Lance Mackey fell off, won all six of those between the two of them. Jeez. In fact, in 2012, Dallas became the youngest ever winner. And then in 2013, Mitch became the oldest ever winner. So that (laughs) father-son team, they actually now beat Lance and Dick for combined wins by a father and son. If you throw in Rick, I think it's still tied at six all. So you can say family-wise, they're still tied. But they've at least tied that record. Hans Gott actually went back and won a fourth UConn quest. Dallas and Mitch have also crushed all of the time records for our boy Lance. So he doesn't hold as many of those. The only ones he does hold still are the four straight, both the UConn quest and the Iditarod. 
But beyond that, he is still the cultural symbol of this sport to a lot of people. In 2015, there was a documentary made about him called The Great Alone, also made in addition to the Iditarod Hall of Fame, the Alaska Sports Hall of Fame, and got an asteroid named after him, 43793 Mackey. I hope that asteroid never comes anywhere near us. It won't. It's just going on a long run, completely alone in the vast frozen wilderness of space. Very appropriate. Mackey doesn't have a lot of the records anymore, but he is the most kind of beloved figure in this sport for everything that he went through to the point where the last image I want to leave you with is a famous picture in Alaska that is taken of a truck, maybe one that was passing through Coldfoot at some point. And maybe that's where it kicked up some of the dirt that was on the back where someone used their finger to write out just one phrase. This picture shows that phrase saying, Superman wears Lance Mackey pajamas. As Terry Dillon said, Iron Man or crazy, either one or both. Just a good old Alaska guy. I would love it if that guy actually did not have any sort of accent whatsoever. And you I'm just, just making it up. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, what, an Alaskan accent, I guess, would be similarly adjacent to Canadian. Be Sarah Palin's accent just like on a guy that's a little bit poorer. <laughs> Sarah Palin is far above the median income of like the state of Alaska. A compelling case for socialism. But no, what an incredible guy. What an incredible come up. It, it, it hits every note, right? We have the overcoming adversity. We have the falling back. We have the humanity on display, which is... An ironic thing to say about a sport where it really does come down to the dogs. But he had those dogs in front of him. He had that dog in him. Nothing but respect for, for Lance. The respect is felt on behalf of our friend, the late Lance Mackey. But I'm feeling something else now. And that is an intense need to hear about another guy. Well, I have hopefully just the guy for the occasion. The guy that I'm going to talk about, we need to really get to the root of what endurance is and what endurance means to endure means to go through something that is difficult something that is long something that is traumatic in some ways and to overcome that to come out on the other side better for it and the guy that i want to talk about not only embodies this within his athletic competitions but truly it is the life of a person who endures, a person who survives. The guy I want to talk about to this day holds the world record in the 50-mile walk at a time of 7 hours, 23 minutes, 50 seconds, which for those of you keeping track at home is an 8-minute, 52-second pace for walking. Still holds the Israeli record in the 50-kilometer walk at a 4-hour, 17-minute mark, which is an 8-17 pace. I'm talking about Shaul Ladini. And I don't want to give away too much in that little preamble, but as we're about to learn very quickly, Shaul Ladini had to learn a lot about surviving at a very young age. He was born April 2nd, 1936 in Belgrade, Yugoslavia at the time. Things are going interestingly in this region of the world at this time. That guy with the weird mustache in Germany is saying some really terrible things and doing some very scary things. But life is fun enough for Shaul at the beginning. In April of 1941, he celebrates his fifth birthday. 
And he also has to flee Belgrade when the Nazis attack Belgrade and his home is bombed. So at the age of five, he's already a refugee. His family would flee to Hungary and they're able to stay out there for three years until shit really hits the fan. The Nazi forces are coming through. His parents try to hide him in a monastery. They tell him that he needs to hide the fact that he's Jewish. But he and his parents are eventually captured. They are sent to the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. Many of his family members were killed in the Holocaust. He said of his maternal grandparents that they were sent to Auschwitz and, quote, were made into soap. However, and this is the rare occasion on this podcast where however leads to good events and good things. <laughs> this, however, is a good however. In December of 1944, there was a group of Jewish Americans that came together to pay a ransom that would result in the freeing of 2,000 imprisoned Jews. Shaul and both of his parents are among those who are selected for release. Speaking of what it was like to be in a concentration camp, Shaul says, I saw my father beaten by the SS. I lost most of my family there. There was a ransom deal that the Americans attempted to save 2,000 Jews, and I was one. I actually went into the gas chamber, but I was then reprieved. God knows why. To just put into context how lucky Shaul is to have gotten out of this situation alive, of the 70,000 Jewish people that were in Yugoslavia prior to the Holocaust, only 3,000 survived, Shaul and his parents being among them. So, one one thousandth of all Yugoslavian Jews to survive are Shaul Ladini and his parents. 0.1%. Um, that's, that's only one decimal place. That's 0.1%. So, remarkable odds already to endure, to overcome. Going through this, Shaul says that after going through something like that, you're never going to be afraid of anything. That perhaps lends itself better to no other sport than endurance sports. He's taking the second lease on life, however, not to immediately launch himself into competition. He is going to further his education. I just want to rattle off the degrees he has because I think they are impressive. He gets his bachelor's in 1960 from the Technion Israel Institute of Technology, and he would earn his master's the following year. Three years later, he would get another graduate's degree in business administration, going on to receive a doctorate from Columbia. He would complete his postdoc research at Tel Aviv University. So an incredibly educated man, but also a man that doesn't want to just work up that mental sweat. He wants to work up that physical sweat. He wants to compete. He wants to test his physical endurance. So he's going to start training for marathons at the age of 18. And he would say, quote, in the 1950s, when I started running, people always thought I was a nut. Jews didn't run. They would laugh. People thought of it as only a punishment for soldiers. Jews don't run? That's a stereotype now? Jews don't run, apparently. That is... <laughs> well, okay, and, clearly not now, I guess. Well, let, let's be very specific. He is not known for his running. He is known for his walking. That's, well, he's in New York. You gotta walk everywhere when you go into Columbia. He's walking here. He's walking there. He's walking everywhere. And the early 1960s is when Shell was gonna decide that this marathon training thing... He's able to compete. He's able to finish marathons. He's able to do respectably, but he wants to contend. So in the early 1960s, 
he chooses to switch from marathon running to race walking. This is a good point to take a brief aside to let you at home who are wondering, what is race walking? Race walking is a very specific type of race. There is one foot that must always appear to be in contact with the ground at all times. I emphasize appear. If there's photographic evidence taken after the fact that both feet are actually off the ground, it means nothing. This doesn't affect anything. There are judges that are constantly watching these races closely, and they are checking to see, does it at least look like one foot's on the ground? All right, good enough. Somewhat of a laissez-faire approach. We're not worried about the actual specifics of one foot always being on the ground. We just want the appearance of one foot always being on the ground favorite things about this incredibly silly sport. I had no idea you were bringing this one up specifically and learned about this maybe two weeks ago. As long as you trick them into thinking you're walking, it's fine. It's legalized pitch framing is kind of how I think of it. And I mean, for better or for worse, you know, I think sometimes sports can be over-officiated, but it's interesting that especially with the modern advances in technology, to be able to very clearly see at all times, if one foot is on the ground at all times, you can put sensors in the shoes. Like, there's so many things you could do. Are there dedicated spotters to just see if people are cheating or not? Or is it just... That, that is exactly it. There are spotters that are watching at all times. And as long as it looks good enough, you're good. <laughs> there's currently two variations of race walking that are competed at the Olympics. That being the 20 kilometer and the 50 kilometer. The 50 kilometer, however, just this year, so if you're looking forward to the 50 kilometer at the 2024 games, I regret to inform you, it's being replaced with the 35 kilometer. Uh, that is officially the international standard as of 2022. So they're trying to shorten these distances in the race walk, which to a person watching at home, I can understand. It's, it's a lot of the same thing. Like if you thought NASCAR was the same thing the whole time. Nonetheless, Shao Ladini disagrees with this kind of premise for the, for the top Olympic and top international categories for race walking. He's more interested in going for the longer races. One thing I, I want to throw in just about race walking in general before we move back to Shao Fuli. The cadence of their stride is the same as a world-class 800 to 1600 meter racer. You're getting the same amount of steps per minute. The only difference is that the stride is shortened significantly. So if you're visualizing that people are taking these crazy long steps and doing it real quickly, that's not what it is at all. It is keeping that longer distance sprint racer cadence, but maintaining that over an incredibly long distance with just a shorter stride. That's really what we're looking at when it comes down to race walking. In speaking of the sport, Shao said, you need a certain type of mental attitude, a willingness to take punishment, to have a lack of comfort and pain, to continue and continue. I'm not a psychologist, but was I stubborn so I entered race walking? Or did I enter race walking and I became stubborn? It's the same in all long distance events. Quitters don't win and winners don't quit. And with that quote, we immediately know that he is not going to be a quitter. In fact, he's going to be a winner. He's going to be a winner very quickly. In 1963, he claims his first Israeli national title in race walking. This would be the first of 28 national titles that he would win. I mean, if we're going to say how many, what, what is the length of the career we're looking at where he wins those 28? 
1963 until 1988, he claims those 28 national titles. So the last of his national titles coming in 1988 at the age of 52. He would win there, his There last. just isn't, for all of those years, anyone better at walking than this guy. In all of Israel. In all of Imagine Israel. Everyone's, everyone else is like, we're just not even going to try. We're going to wait until he decides to retire, and then we'll, then we'll care. Oy, Gavalt. So at the age of 52, he claims that final title, but we're not going to skip all the way ahead to there quite yet. We're still going to stay back in the 60s. In 1966, he would go for a 50-mile walk in the United States, and he would set a U.S. track record for the 50-mile walk. He would do this in New Jersey. So still no world records, still no world championships, but traveling the seas, he's going to different lands, and he is establishing himself at the very best at this thing in this country. So he misses the 64 Olympics. But in 1968, Chaul competes in his first Olympics, this being the Mexico City Olympics. And something that is notable about his participation in these Olympics is that he did not have a coach. If he had a coach, he may have been better trained in the high altitude that is in Mexico City. Mile high in Denver, we're talking two mile high in Mexico City. So very high altitude, very little oxygen, which isn't going to stop Shaul from finishing the race. But he will finish in 24th place at five hours, one minute and six seconds. Otherworldly. But yeah, as you said, 24th place. 24th place, unfathomable. What's that pace? So okay. it's a 50 kilometer. Tom, you said I, I can feel this. Five hours, one minute, six seconds. I'm a, yeah, I mean, that's almost exactly 10 kilometers an hour, which is going to be 6.2 miles an hour. Pretty good. So just under a 10 minute pace. Wonderful math. I, if there's like a, like a teacher's bell or like a, like a gold star sound effect that we can do. So doesn't finish on the podium or anything like that. But Shaul's not concerned about getting a medal. He's concerned about setting world records. So in the lead up to the 1972 Olympics, he's again going to stretch this back out. 50 kilometers isn't long enough for him. He wants to go 50 miles. And in early 1972, he does claim his first world record in race walking. He's going to do that 50 miles in seven hours, 44 minutes, 47 seconds. This shatters the world record that had stood since 1935. So 37 years later, the record is absolutely obliterated. He would then later that same year get it down to the 7-hour, 23-minute, 50-second that I mentioned as the current world record. That record stands to this day. So he smashes the world record and then shaves another 24 minutes off of it because why the fuck not? We now go to the 1972 Olympics, these being the Munich Games. I don't like where this is going. This has already been like a, a pretty depressing hey, personal we life. We know that he makes it to at least 1988. This is true. He makes it to 1988 at the very least. When he first gets there, Shaul is being almost a little cheeky with the press. The, the local German reporters commended him on his fluent German, and he immediately responded, I learned it well when I spent a year at Bergen-Belsen. He was asked if he hated the Germans. He said, 
I don't say I have to hate Germans, of course not the younger generation, but I have no special sympathy for the older generation who have been accused of what happened in the Nazi period. Notably, Shaul goes as the only male member of the Israeli track and field team. In the lead up to his race, he would wear the Star of David on his warm-up jersey. Again, just he wanted to show to people that, yes, I am a Jew, I am here in Germany, and I survived. In the 1972 50-kilometer race walk, Chao Ladini crushes his time from Mexico City. He's getting down to 4 hours, 24 minutes, 38 seconds, which would still be 7 minutes slower than the best that he did in training, and this would only be good for 17th place. But he goes to Munich, he competes, he finishes. Uh, when he's asked how he felt after, he says, quote, arrogant because of what the Germans did to me, proud because I am a Jew. After his race, he would then return to the Olympic Village and he'd go to sleep. The following morning is September 5th, 1972. This is the day of the Munich massacre. Palestinian terrorists would break into the Israeli team hotel looking to take the Israeli delegation hostage. They would first capture and kill Moshe Weinberg, who was the wrestling coach. Speaking of this morning, Shell would say, Early in the morning, somebody wakens me. I open my eyes, and that's when my roommate from the Mexico Olympic Games says, Get up. Moni was just killed by Arab terrorists. I knew him as a joker, but that sounded too serious, so without thinking much, in my pajamas, I went to the entrance door of the apartment, opened it, and looked around. I have seen guards from the village, and they were speaking to somebody that was standing in the entrance to apartment number one. I have noticed his dark skin in the hat, and I listened, still without being afraid or thinking that something is very dangerous for me. And the guards are asking the permission to let the Red Cross enter apartment one and provide some aid to a wounded person and the man. The man would refuse. They said, why should you be so inhumane? And the man replied saying, like either, the Jews or the Israelis are not humane either. At that point, I understood that something is going on and I closed the door. So this is apartment one that he witnesses this in. Apartment two is where Shaul is staying. He immediately finds a back exit that would leave him in view of the terrorists, but he believes would at least give him a clear cut to the rest of the Olympic Village. So he gets out of there and he, in fleeing from the second apartment, led the terrorists to believe that there was nobody left in the second apartment. There were people left in the second apartment, but they did not bother going there as a result of that. Uh, he runs to get a little bad if the guy that's like the fastest walker in the world left a bunch of people in the apartment and they got capped. So I'm glad that his walking away very, very quickly did pay off for other individuals. That's good. Well, he does say that he ran this time. So he's not using his uh, world expertise in uh, unfamiliar territory for him. Very risky. He does get out of there. Um, They do not believe that there are any other hostages left in the second apartment. So the people who were there do survive. He runs to get help. He first runs into the American coach, Bill Bowerman. Bowerman would immediately deploy their security team to the rooms of the two Jewish athletes, uh, that being Bill Schmidt and Mark Spitz. Mark Spitz is competing at these Olympics. They go to get him security. Ladini is like basically the first person to let anybody else know what's going on and to help spread the word to like get like the massive security down there. And because of his efforts, Shaul Ladini is one of the five members of the Jewish delegation to survive. However, Moshe Weinberg and 10 others were killed. 
what's crazy about this is, and you can imagine the inaccuracy and how crazy uh, details change of developing breaking news stories today. It's even crazier in 1972. The initial reports had Shaul among the dead. He was listed as having been killed. Family and friends assume he's dead until he finally, you know, he hears the news that he's dead and he's like, wait a second, I'm that guy and I'm not dead. <laughs> um, so he corrects the news and he says that like the gravity of the situation never really hit him until when he saw his family at the airport when he finally gets back. And, you know, they're, they're hugging him and like kissing him as if they had seen a ghost is how he describes it. And in effect, yeah, the, the news had spread that he was dead. You're not going to really believe that he's alive until you see him with your own eyes at that point. And thankfully, obviously, Shaul does make it back to his family. This September was the 50th anniversary of the Munich massacre. He returned to Munich wearing the same team blazer that he did in 1972 in honor of the lives lost and uh, to commemorate the occasion. After all of this, you can imagine the Israeli track and field authorities want him to take some time off. They want him to rest, recuperate. Holy hell, you just went through this crazy thing. Shaul wants no part of that. Shaul says, survived the Holocaust. This was like bad. Don't get me wrong. This is bad. But again, as he said earlier, once you go through the Holocaust, nothing's really going to scare you much. Everything's better than that. Everything's better than the Holocaust. So he says, forget all that. And he's actually going to go compete in the 1972 World Championships for track and field in the ultra long distance walking. So 50 kilometer is not the longest event. The 100 kilometer is the longest event that they're going to have be competed. He's going to go ahead and he is going to earn his gold medal in the 100 kilometer walk with a time of nine hours, 31 minutes on the dot. Just months after having led the efforts to help some survive the Munich massacre. Insanity. And mind you, he would still win 16 more Israeli national championships after that. <laughs> Within this time, he would also win the U.S. championships six times from 1973 to 1981. He became the first person ever to win both the American Open and the American Masters in the same event. He would repeat this feat in 1977 and in 1981, by which time it had become a 100-kilometer race. So again, pushing 50, still just out here winning competitions like it's nothing. The 1972 gold medal in Switzerland would be his only international gold medal, but Again, just continuing the world tour, he would win the Belgian national title. He would win the South African national title. Really just trying to manifest destiny his ass all over the place and claim their lands as his for being the best in race walking. To wade into anything too contentious, but being associated with a country that has maybe been described as having some colonialist overtones and this overall attitude towards collecting infinity gems of every country's national championship. Seems a little on the nose. He's certainly getting around. Nobody can dispute that. Obviously, he can't compete on a elite level for all ages forever. But race walking is really Shaul's identity at this point. He continues with 
very considerable success on the master circuit well into his 70s. In 2006, he becomes the first 70-year-old to walk 100 miles in under 24 hours when he set the world record for that age category with a time of 21 hours, 45 minutes, and 34 seconds. 100 miles. That's a lot of walking. Just walking. By 2012, he's 75. He's still competing in 35 events a year. Says every day he walks a minimum of 15 kilometers. And he has a four-day, 300-kilometer walk that he does from Paris to Brussels. So really just still getting out, not slowing down for any reason, going to keep it going. And to the age of 80, he would celebrate each of his birthdays by walking his age in kilometers. <laughs> That's too much walking. Too much walking. I can't. Well, as, as he learned going to Columbia, and as James so eloquently put it, he's walking here. When he hit 80, he decides to start cutting it in half. Be a little more reasonable. Starts walking 40 kilometers from then forth. 2019, he decided to ramp it back up one last time. And on his 83rd birthday, would walk 83 kilometers. He was set to do 84 in 2020. But in case you folks forgot, there is the whole COVID pandemic thing. So that derailed those plans. But to this day, Shaoladini is alive and well. And if you are walking down the main street in whatever city you may be in, be you in America, be you in South Africa, be you in Israel, be you in Switzerland, there's one thing that's certain. You better look over your shoulder and you're going to say, who's that guy walking there? And that guy walking there is Shaul Ladini. Long walks cannot stop him. The Holocaust cannot stop him. The Munich massacre cannot stop him. Terrible Dustin Hoffman accents can't stop him. He's just going to keep walking right through him. Shaul Ladini, a key figure in the reason why the Munich Massacre was not totally shit. And yeah, I firmly believe a guy. A guy and definitely not a goy. Definitely not a goy. <laughs> it was a very serious and at times depressingly somber story about maybe the least serious and somber sport in the world. I mean, there's, there's a Seinfeld joke to make there, I think. <laughs> Larry David could get on that. Well, Xavier, on perhaps less of a serious and somber note, I'd love to hear what you have. Yeah, mine, mine's definitely less somber. I can tell you that. So it's better than the Holocaust. You know what? I'm not going to say that. But I'm going to say my guy did not experience the Holocaust. And as far as I know, has never had any sort of personal tragedy along that level. So, you know, we've talked about endurance dog sledding and endurance race walking. So what else is there? How about endurance motorsport? I want to talk about Mr. Lamont himself, Tom Christensen. I was thinking as I was like starting today talking about Lance Mackey, man, why didn't I talk about someone that does Lamont? Thank you so much. So Jennifer. let's get into it. There's no better person to talk about for Le Mans than Tom Christensen. So born on July 7th, 1967 in Hobro, Denmark. Hobro is a small town in northern Jutland. Uh, and it's more well known for producing cyclists. It's produced multiple Olympic level cyclists, despite being a very small town. But a young Tom preferred a different wheeled mode of transportation. 
So Tom grew up around cars and racing, as his dad was a racing driver. And he also owned a gas station that, you know, he operated whenever he wasn't dragging Tom and the rest of the family around to his events. Growing up around all these cars, of course he's going to love them. So he drives for the first time at age 11 and crashes into one of the posts at the gas station while his parents are away for the weekend. And he totals his father's Austin Marina. Thankfully, this is not an auger of things to come. I'm not going to tell you about a guy who keeps crashing all the time, thankfully. Despite this crash, his love of cars and driving just continues to grow. And so, as a teenager, he gets into kart racing. And he wins multiple local karting titles, including the Nordic Championship for Formula A in 1985 as an 18-year-old. After all of his karting success, he decides to do what anyone who wants to get into racing does. He moves to Japan. So here, in Japan, he competes in the Japanese Formula 3 Championship, Open Wheel Racing, and also the Japanese Touring Car Championship. Two very different disciplines of motorsport. While here in Japan, he wins the Japanese Formula 3 Championship in 1993, and he finishes on the podium, uh, third in the Touring Car Championship in 92, and second in 94. So at this point, he's you know, shown off his chops, and... He gets a chance to compete in Formula 3000, which, as you know, avid listeners of our show will remember from some previous episodes, at the time was the feeder league to Formula One. Because I had to explain the difference between Formula 3000 and Formula Two and, and everything else that comes with it. Yes, and on behalf of those that maybe didn't remember that, uh, certainly not myself included, but thank you for restating it. <laughs> so his rookie year in Formula 3000, he finishes seventh despite not even competing in three of the ten races. In 1997, he's continuing to improve, and then halfway through his second Formula 3000 season, he gets his first experience with what he would later become known for. 1996, 24-hour of Le Mans winner Davy Jones injures his neck in a practice crash, and Team Jost of Germany needs a new driver for Le Mans. So they call... Tom Christensen, last minute to fill out their squad. He is in Austria qualifying for a Formula 3000 race at this time and has to essentially use his own money to get to France last minute. Arrives so late, he only has the chance to take a couple of practice laps before the actual race starts. He gets there like the day before. My goodness. So before I go further in depth in this, for those who don't know, the 24-hour of Le Mans is the world's oldest active endurance racing event. It is in Le Mans, France, hence why it's called the 24 Hours of Le Mans. The winner is determined by the car that covers the greatest distance in 24 hours. The circuit is a road course through the town that's about eight and a half miles long per lap, uh, one of the longest in the world. Speeds can reach up to 227 miles per hour in the straights. Because of driver safety requirements, teams are almost always made up of three drivers. There are very rare cases where if you juggle things perfectly, you can do two, but it's not great for safety, so pretty much every team is made up of three drivers. Tom steps in last minute for Team Jost, joining Michelle Alberto of Italy and Stefan Johansson of Sweden. And they win by one lap, completing 361 laps and beating Team McLaren. 
Tom puts up the fastest lap of the entire race with a blistering three minutes, 45 seconds, and 68 hundredths of a second. 68 thousandths of a second, I should say. So, first ever start, comes in last minute, and he wins. Despite the success, Jost did not keep him as a driver because he was just a replacement for injury. But Tom was kind of hooked now. So he moves to Team BMW because he still wants to compete in Le Mans. 98, this new team doesn't do so well. 99, they're doing great. And then there's a gearbox error and the car ends up crashing out near the end of the race. I mean, are you able to replace your car if stuff happens or is it like you only have the one? You only have the one. And the whole purpose of the endurance race is you're trying to get as far as you can while also keeping the car in working order. So you can do some minor repairs, but you can't do anything, any, anything major you know, on the car. And especially like if you're out for so long, there's no real even you know, attempt to do major repairs because by the time you get back in it, it's pretty much over. But Tom does have some success with Team BMW. Also in 1999 decides to participate for the first time in the 12 Hours of Sebring. This is one of the other two races that makes up the unofficial Triple Crown of Endurance Racing, along with the 24 Hours of Daytona. So Sebring is a middle-of-nowhere town in south-central Florida. It is pretty much an hour and a half from Sarasota, an hour and a half from Orlando, an hour and a half from West Palm Beach. There's nothing there. But it is considered one of the best prep races for the 24-hour of Le Mans because the conditions are so awful that it's a great chance to really put your team to the test. We found this really shitty spot in Florida that's like the worst possible conditions we should have for a race. Yeah, and it's one of the biggest, like I said, it's one of the three races of the unofficial triple crown of endurance racing along with Le Mans. So it's not as prestigious as Le Mans, but it's either second or third with 24 hours of Daytona. It depends on who you ask. A lot of Europeans don't compete as much in Daytona for some reason. I think it's just because of when it is. Daytona is like is very early in the year. But a lot of the Europeans who do compete in Le Mans, they will also compete in Sebring. Tom competes in Sebring. And of course, he wins it on his first try. They actually tie with Dyson Racing, at 313 laps completed in 12 hours, but they had covered further distance on their last lap to win by tiebreaker. So just like they took wider turns? No, so they had gotten like slightly further on, they, they oh, hadn't completed okay, okay, 314 okay. laps, but they had gotten further into a 314th lap than the other team did. Work. So officially it's tied at 313, but they had gotten further on the next lap so they win through that tiebreaker. It's the, a distance tiebreaker, essentially. Although that would be funny if they just... You took a wider turn around turn eight, so you win. So at this point, Tom has shown that it's not a fluke that he won Le Mans on his first try, even with, you know, the lack of Le Mans success in the, the two straight DNFs. So in 2000, he joins up again with Team Jost. Permanently this time, or at least on an actual contract. And this time he forms a squad with Frank Biella of Germany and Emanuele Piero of Italy. And this marks a start of record dominance. In 2000, they win Le Mans. And they win Sebring. They even finished second in the Petit Le Mans, 
which is a modified endurance race across a smaller track in Georgia, which is also considered one of the top endurance races. Now, you're saying that many of the Europeans don't compete in Daytona. Is he among them? Yes, Tom has never competed in Daytona. He doesn't want the Triple Crown? It's interesting. There's very few people who have done the Triple Crown just because they don't usually all compete in the same amount of events. He, he has said previously that maybe one day he would like to do that. And Chip Ganassi said back in 2016, he actually wrote on a piece of paper that he would fund a car for Tom to compete at Daytona when he turns 55. Tom is currently 55, and Daytona is coming up in about a month. So who knows? Maybe he comes out of retirement to give it one shot. But as of right now, he has not. Also in 2000, Tom participates in the 2000 British Touring Car Championship. Again, very, very different from endurance racing. And he wins multiple races, including the last two of the season, even with that not being his big thing. Tom and Team Jost then win the 2001 Le Mans. And then the 2002 Le Mans. And then, as if to prove that he's not lucky to be just part of a great team, he moves to Team Bentley and wins Le Mans again in 2003. Then, he moves to Audi Sport Japan and wins Le Mans again in 2004. And then, you know what, just to be cocky, he moves to ADT Champion Racing the next year with all new teammates and wins Le Mans in 2005 for a record sixth time in a row across four different teams. And he also wins Sebring again this year. different teams. My God. Three consecutive years of different teams, winning Le Mans with all of them. 2006, with nothing left to prove, Tom goes back to Team Jost just because he can. For the first time ever, his team finishes Le Mans without winning it. They finish third behind the other Team Jost car run by ex-teammates Biela and Piero. But he does win Sebring for a second year in a row. 2007. Looks like he's going to win Le Mans again. And then teammate Ronaldo Capello of Italy crashes their car while they're in the lead right near the end of the race. It's weird to think about how this is an endurance sport that does very much require you to very literally turn the wheel over to other individuals for large portions of it. And that's the thing that's tough in that, you know, Tom has shown that he can win with pretty much anyone at this point. He was really mad at Ronaldo. There was a quote where Ronaldo talked about how he apologized to Tom and Tom said, yeah, you should. We were going to win that race. This is all your fault. <laughs> but when you're Tom Christensen, you've won six times. You, you can do that. Well, he, he didn't even need a Jason Lezak. He just needed, like, a standard performance. Yeah, just don't crash. And actually, I should say, he's won seven times at this point. Six in a row plus 97. But Tom's not going to dwell on this for too long. Because in 2008, he comes back and wins Le Mans and Sebring again. 2009, he wins Sebring another time. This is greed at this point, my friend. This is greed! 2012, despite being 45 years old, Tom decides that he wants to participate in the inaugural FIA World Endurance Championships, which is a new season-long championship that included eight endurance events, two of them being Le Mans and Sebring. So in, in this first year of this FIA, FIA World Championship, Tom wins Sebring, finishes second Le Mans, 
and finishes second overall in the world championships. He finishes in the podium for every single event they do that year. But that's not enough for Tom. So he comes back in 2013. And this time he wins Le Mans again for the ninth time. And he also wins races at Silverstone and Austin, winning the overall world championship. So now he is a 46-year-old world champion with nine Le Mans wins and six Sebring wins. No one has more than him for both of those. Sorry, I believe that's six and nine wins for Sebring. Yes, six and nine. I think that's how we should. There we go. Nice. No one else has more than six for Le Mans. So he has a three-win lead still to this day. Overall, he participated in Le Mans 18 times. The 14 times his team's finished, he finished on the podium. So it was either they meddled or they crashed. The crashing usually not being Tom's fault. Pretty good way to get some silverware is find a way to be on Tom Christensen's team. Just don't be one that fucks it up for him. There are three major endurance events in eight different championships across multiple different racing disciplines that Tom competed in during his professional career. He won races in all of them. There has never been a competition he entered that he has not won at least one time. Despite, again, touring cars, Formula One cars, endurance cars being extremely different in function and style of the car, how to maintain the cars, the courses that you're racing on, and yet Tom excels in all of them. In his native Denmark, he gets knighted by the Queen in 2014 and named to the Order of the Danabrog, which is an awesome name that I personally love. And he's only one of only 38 people inducted into the Danish Sports Hall of Fame. He also gets inducted into the FIA Hall of Fame in 2019. He officially retires in 2014, but since then, he's still been you know, very active in the motorsport world. Uh, he's been involved in the leadership for the Drivers Commission of the FIA, which advocates for better safety and accident investigation groups for drivers, among other driver protection initiatives. He was just named the ambassador slash grand marshal for Le Mans for their centenary celebration next season. So he's going to be the guy to, you know, do all the festivities beforehand and start the race. He's also continued to take part in uh, the annual Race of Champions, which is a winter tournament where drivers from across the world and across racing disciplines compete in 1v1 races. The fun part being, they choose a different type of car every year, and everyone races in the same type of car. So one year, they're all racing in tricked-out Ford Focuses. Another year, they're racing in dune buggies. It's fantastic. And Tom's really good at this, too. There's two different tournaments in, in one. There's one for individuals and one that's a pair sport with two drivers representing a country or region of the world. So his first year competing in 2014, he wins the Nations Cup section, beating the UK in the finals. In 2015, he finishes second in the individual competition, losing to Sebastian Vettel, who at that point was the greatest F1 driver in the world. In 2016, he again makes it to the final of the individual competition, losing to extended Gyniverse uh, member Juan Pablo Montoya. But then he comes back and wins oh, the yeah. Nations Cup again in 2019. So Tom, big lover of motorsport. He's always looking to, you know, find ways to talk about how great it is and... You know, he was talking, he recently was talking about how Drive to Survive on Netflix 
is so positive for the motorsport community that they should keep finding ways to make things safe for the drivers, but also, you know, exciting for fans. And it wouldn't surprise me if he keeps doing like these race of champions for a decade longer, as long as he's still having fun. Um, but yeah, Tom, Tom Christensen, Mr. Lamont, the greatest endurance driver of all time. Doesn't get as much attention for the fact that he's also the record holder for most Sebring wins. I guess Mr. Lamont slash Sebring might be too long. But at this point, nobody can touch him. And I doubt anyone will even get close to his record anytime soon. Also, fun fact, he has an Audi R18 room in his house, which is awesome because it's just like an entire racing hypercar just having its own room. And then he has an entire floor-to-ceiling tree made of trophies because he's won literally everything that he's ever entered. That's very seasonally appropriate. You know what? Those Danes, they, they love Christmas. I think they do. In the extended guy universe, they absolutely do. <laughs> sir Tom Christensen, do they, if he is knighted, do we say sir? Is that their practice? I do, so I don't believe that the Danes do sir, at least not from what I could tell. It didn't look like they do. Very well. Then not Sir Tom Christensen, but definitely a knight, definitely a guy. I'll be frank, fellas. I came into this feeling pretty confident. I thought I had a very good shot at a three-peat, but I am absolutely smitten with both Shaul and Tom here. Any other day, Lance runs away with it. Laying the body on the line, losing the finger, overcoming demons, coming to them again. I mean, it's an incredible web that you've woven for dear Lance, but... We get back to endurance. It's hard to say that anybody has endured more than the Holocaust survivor. It's really, really tough to say that. That, may, that is true. That, that, that is 100% true. I cannot argue with that. My one point for Tom will be, Tom is the only story that didn't make me sad slash feeling depressed at any point during the telling of the story. Well, there you go. There's, I think, an interesting fundamental difference between the two of them. Like, even Lance was relying on the dog. Like, Lance was not going on his own. Shaul is both the one that endured the most, but he also, compared to Tom, is the one that was the most, we talked about, isolated in the sport in many ways. Now, I, I think it's very cool still to think about endurance races where you do as much as you can and much as you're allowed to and then do have to turn some of that control over to teammates and trust in them like there's definitely plenty to be said for that i don't know that i'm solidified on my decision yet but that is just i think a very interesting to see those those two sides of the endurance sport coin i mean the other argument i would make on behalf of shaul is again if we are talking about the endurance i am not throwing any shade on how physically tough it is to be out in fucking Alaskan blizzards for 12 days, to stay seated in that car and to stay like mentally engaged for that long. But like, when you think of an endurance sport, you think of like, wow, this person is putting their body through hell. And to walk for like nine hours straight, nuts. And to, to not only walk for nine hours straight, but we were breaking down those paces earlier for a 50 mile walk. He's going at about an eight minute, 52 pace the whole way. 
to put that in perspective, when I did the Broad Street Run 10 miler, my pace was a nine minute, 10 second. He walked 50 miles at a faster pace than I can run 10. That is the pinnacle, the peak of endurance sports, in my view. That's fair. The one thing I will say is that during Tom's last Le Mans win in 2013, 10 minutes into the race, his fellow countryman, Alan Simonson, did die in a crash. So, like, you're most likely not going to die from race walking, I would assume. But if you are driving 200 plus miles an hour for seven, eight, nine, ten hours, the chances of mortal injury are very high. So I do want to push back on that point just a little bit. It seems like the two of you are both kind of entrenched in your guys, and I recognize that means it's, it's kind of my responsibility if I've turned away from Lance. I'm sorry, Lance. R.I.P. But I got, I got to come to a decision here to side with one of the two of you. And I think in the end, I will say, I've biked for seven hours. I think the difference between doing something like walking and biking for seven hours versus nine hours, nine hours walking is a lot. We are also talking about a car race that, while he might not be a part of it, is 24 straight hours and then dog sled races that are measured in date. However, maybe this is kind of the final step in your pandering to me, because what you did this time, instead of trying to pander to me with details, was you took a topic and you were like, endurance, you say? You added to that in ways that I don't think we could have anticipated. And so I believe that it is Shaul's turn. Lahayam. and Xavier, I'm sorry. I, I'm it, sure. It, you know, it's fine. It's Friday night. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Shabbat Shalom and welcome into our home and welcome into our hall. One of the most resilient guys, not just in the history of sports, of athletics, but truly of mankind. Now we can officially call it guy kind. Thank you and welcome to Shaul Ladini. A now certified guy. Mazel tov, shalom. We should, I mean, we're obviously all Gentile, in case you can't tell from our very limited vocabulary. Just hope that's not offending anybody. Hey, we did um, celebrate Shabbat for like four years in a row. Certainly, all three of us are from a historically Jewish fraternity. We are all also very much not Jewish. No, but in, uh, in all serious, thank you all. Happy holidays as you are listening to this. Uh, this episode is a gift for the second night of Hanukkah. If you're listening to it on Monday, hope you're enjoying it and having a lovely holiday. As we mentioned earlier, we alluded we, there will be some special programming next week. We've got the 2023 Goaties. It has come to that time again, folks. The Guy of the Year Awards. We've got some musical acts planned, some star-studded events, guy-studded events, if we're being completely honest. We still don't quite want to get all the way up to stars. But it's going to be a blast, and we hope you'll join us for that, our final episode of 2022. And, uh, hey, one more time, just what a performance by Argentina yesterday to get Lionel Messi his very first. That was the real present on the first night of Hanukkah, an Argentina World Cup victory. It was really weird when Diego Maradona came back to life and offered that white substance to Messi. That whole part, I don't know if I like that. But otherwise, congratulations to Argentina. Because this time, it wasn't the hand of God. It was the hand of Maradona. It was just ghost Maradona. If this happens, I'm blaming the fact that half the French team is sick with some 
weird virus that apparently means that they're locking oh, them in their bedrooms. Oh, you mean the voodoo? Rooms. Oh, you mean the voodoo, Xavier? I told you all along. It's the voodoo. Argentina's gonna win. They locked Adrian Rabio in his hotel room and said, do not come out because we do not want you infecting other people. And it did not work because another four French starters are apparently locked in their hotel rooms sick right now. Well, it didn't work, and Argentina won, and I'm James. Go Morocco in the third place game. I'm very special guest Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And to repurpose an old sign-off, but as said by Shaul Ladini, guys never quit, and quitters never die. Yeah.